0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Wrong Think Radio. I'm your host, Aaron, broadcasting from just outside the nation's capital in beautiful northern Virginia. And I'm Alan, coming from me lovely and Overcast, greater Seattle metropolitan area. And this is Wrong Think Radio. This is our two-hour live program that we do every single Sunday, typically from noon to two, but we have moved it over to the evening for right now. And we do have a special guest that's going to be coming on in the second hour. His name is Joe Dolio. We'll have more to describe about him but he is our survival expert that we've promised to bring on because there's a lot of stuff that we're going to be talking about this week that will directly correlate to his subject matter expertise and the kinds of things that we are going to need to see from him and basically um, I'll get him to correct it if uh, he doesn't like it but uh, I would say how to survive without help. Basically, how can you be self-sustaining without having to rely on a government that seems like it's going to hate you, uh, or seems like it hates you. Now, one of the big things uh, that we're going to have to discuss a lot on the program coming into the beginning is the supply chain. And Alan, I think you can best describe what the supply chain
1: is. So what is the supply chain? The supply chain is the chain the government beats you with until you decide to get vaccinated. Well, that actually
0: very much appears to be true because according to a statement that was made by a representative of the treasury, was it? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. He was the U.S. Treasury. Wally Adeyemo. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wally Adeyemo, Biden administration's second highest official in the U.S. Treasury Department.
0: Yeah. Basically said that, uh, you know, the shortages in the supply chain are going to continue, Until everybody gets vaccinated.
1: Yeah, uh, everyone. And here his quote was, we are in an economy that's in transition. We are seeing high prices for some of the things that people have to buy. The reality is that the only way we're going to get to a place where we can work through this transition is if everyone in America and everyone around the world gets vaccinated. If everyone's vaccinated, the White House will be able to provide the resources the American people need to make it to the other side.
0: I don't understand what that means, because what it sounds like now, I'm just saying what it sounds like is it almost sounds like they're saying, well, we could help, but we're not going to. Unless everyone gets vaccinated.
1: I'm just curious how long it's going to be until being an unvaccinated American qualifies you as a domestic terrorist. Well,
0: to. mm there There have already been plenty of people who have made that suggestion to be completely honest we've already seen people trying to claim that it's terrorism it's only a matter it is only a matter of time they'll call it biological terrorism or they'll they'll give it they'll give it some oh, fancy name because we're already we're already going down sure. that road
1: That's for sure what they're going to do yeah I bet because... they're they're going to classify it as well biological threats are. In our big booklet of possible terror threats and being unvaccinated, technically, we have we had this guy in a lab coat we paid 50 bucks to tell Congress that it's a biological terror threat, so it checks the right box. Guess what? Your phones can now be freely tapped by the NSA, and you can be dragged to a CIA vaccination site.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you're really just wandering around with a weapon of mass destruction just sitting there on your lips uh, ready to turn into droplets and uh, kill a bunch of vaccinated Americans because the vaccine totally works, which is why we're
1: afraid of people yeah. who have COVID, even though... I mean, the, the pro- here's the thing with the vaccine. It doesn't stop transmission. It doesn't stop infection. In fact, it seems to be causing a lot more deaths than it's actually people it's actually saving. For example, in Taiwan, there were 864 COVID deaths. And 895 deaths attributed to the vaccine. Well, Taiwan's not even a country. That's a very interesting set of statistics. Real <laughs> curious about that. Uh, <laughs> Israel and Singapore both had the highest vaccine uh, rates per country uh, in the 85 to 90 percent of the population was vaccinated. Those are now the biggest hotspots for this outbreaks of the Delta variant. And they've had to walk back all of the unlockdowns that they did, which is... To me, a not crazy person seems to completely indicate that the vaccines cause the Delta variant. So there's a lot of red flags around this vaccine that should make everyone extremely suspicious
0: of it. Um, Everything you're saying is kooky and I don't care where you got your evidence
1: because Dr. Fauci is the only person we listen to. And until I will he- no. This is actually a horrifying reality. I had the misfortune of having to sit in the same room while local news was playing uh, this week, and I watched as they blatantly lied on the news to everyone saying, well, really, it's all it's all these unvaccinated people are driving all the sicknesses. And that is patently false. That is not true by any view of any metric of how of the realities of our current situation. People that have gotten the vaccine are the highest likelihood of people to get a COVID infection and the news flat out lied about it. Now, again, we always say, of course, well, the media is not to be trusted, but to watch it happen is still always shocking to me to be like, no, no, they, they're not going to, I mean, we say that, but are they really just going to bald face lie in the news? And oh my God, they just did it. They just did it again. They just did it again. And then I watched them on the same show, talk about, oh, it's crazy in the the Washington state ferries. There's a lot of ferries out here. We got a lot of islands. There's ferry services. Run oh, by the, the boats.
0: I'm sorry. Yeah, th- the, boats. I, the boats. I thought you were talking about the other. Never mind.
1: Oh, well, I'm sure. I mean, they have their own endemic diseases in the population to deal with. <laughs> um, but all they were talking about the ferry service. And saying, oh, and, and it's really terrible, everybody. This coming, you know, the whole winter, like the ferry services has a has just a big staffing problem. They have a staffing problem and a lot of boats in for maintenance. That's why we're reducing the number of ferries, reducing the amount of service. There's going to be way longer wait times. It's It's a really big it's all just staffing problems and, and boat service problems. And then I looked into it. The reality is. Washington state mandated the vaccine for all state workers, which includes all the ferry workers and the ferry workers responded by basically going on strike. So currently we have the pilot strike. We now have the Washington state ferries going on strike being reported with a straight face on the news as simply a staffing shortage. Mm -hmm. I know here in, in Washington, uh, a, like 50% of the cops are sp- basically saying they're going to quit when it comes due that they have to get the vaccine or be fired they're going to leave which is tomorrow uh, I think tomorrow yeah mm-hmm. Chicago 50% of the cops there are have stated they're going to leave when this deadline hits around the country the, the media is a total media blackout on any of this but when you look into it everywhere there are people that are being mandated to take the vaccine and in droves they are responding with, I would rather not, I would rather walk off my job than play along with your nonsense. And that is, and that is causing this wild swing and chaos in the system that the media is silent on, completely silent Well,
0: and that's, because, yeah. That, that, that's what's interesting. Right. Is, you know, we, we already saw this when it came to um, the uh, when, when it came to the um, pilots at Southwest Southwest Airlines was unable to fulfill um, thousands of flights. And then the response was, oh, it's because of the bad weather. And there's all these people going, there isn't any bad. What what are you talking about? You know, like that wouldn't I can get on a different airline and fly. But I can't get on Southwest. That doesn't make any sense. And it was all because you had pilots, you had air traffic controllers that were all saying, no, we're striking because we don't want to get, you know, we don't want to get the vaccine. And it became this like wild situation, uh, like what we talked about earlier in the week, where all of these groups were on strike. The media was lying about it and it created almost these like two different Americas Because we're listening to air traffic controllers. We're seeing pilots say that they are refusing to go get vaccinated. We saw the CEO of Southwest Airlines have to put out a public statement that said, I'm not going to fire anybody if they're unvaccinated. But then you had the news saying, oh, no, 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 no. And you had liberals who were just listening to MSNBC and CNN saying it was the weather. Oh, it's a right wing conspiracy that it has to do with vaccines. And yeah. It it is like the we talk a lot about the left gaslighting America. This is extremely serious in in the concept of you have all of these people, for example, in Seattle, which is a pretty liberal town. All of those people are going to know exactly why they're not going to work. They're going to be telling their friends and neighbors why they're not going to work. And it's going to be the weirdest thing to watch these hyper-liberal areas like the city of Seattle try to sit there and say, well, no, it's because it's a a staffing shortage. And
1: what's going to happen? a staffing shortage because people didn't want to be forced to take the vaccine. Right. And then you take this statement that
0: comes from somebody at the Department of Treasury that is inferring that vaccines are directly tied to the supply chain shortage which makes no sense in the reference of how supply chains work. And so you're left to assume that the reason there's a supply chain shortage has something to do with vaccines, with which the only thing that it could have to do when it comes to vaccines is that there are companies mandating them and workers that are refusing to get
1: them. And third the companies are maintaining that demand in the face of mass walkouts. Exactly. And that, to me, is the more interesting part of this, is not necessarily that it's happened, which is, actually gives me a lot of hope. It's the fact that these, a lot of these companies have companies, departments, cities – have are refusing to back down in the face of mass walkouts for something so trivial as just get this get this vaccine get this vaccine for this disease that's not really hurting anybody it, i don't see bodies piling up in the streets this does not seem all that serious hot hospitals are still not overflowing it's not a crisis anywhere i i mean i According to – if this was necessary, if, the, if, we are, if this vaccine had to be mandated across the population, we needed 100% compliance, and it was actually necessary, I should know at least five close friends that have died of COVID. I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone that's even been in the hospital for COVID. And I know a good number of people. I, the, the oldest, sickest guy that I work with got COVID, slept it off over the weekend, like officially got COVID. And then he was just not at work for a few days and came back and was just like, ah, it was kind of like the flu. And it's like, okay, it didn't kill him, didn't kill Donald Trump. It didn't kill, like, so you're, it's like you're telling me that there's this disease that's kind of like the flu that attacks the same people the flu attacks and kills the, 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 a few of them just like the flu does. And for that, we're going to completely restructure everything in society and turn the world on its head. Like I, I'm not not feeling it. I'm not seeing it. I don't I don't. It seems completely incongruous with the realities that we're all experiencing in real life. And that makes it seem so especially strange to me that there is this at the bureaucratic level, this push on the seriousness of getting people vaccinated. But here in reality, it seems completely pointless. It's like, and especially given that the vaccine, we know the vaccine doesn't work. We know it doesn't protect you from infection. It doesn't protect you from transmission. The CDC and Dr. Fauci, all these people, they now claim all the vaccine does is prevent the disease from being quite so bad. It might prevent you from dying from COVID. Well, I'm already not dying from COVID. I'm a young, healthy person. I don't need to not need help not dying from COVID because COVID doesn't kill me because I'm invincible to COVID because I'm a young, healthy person. And that means that it's all the crazier to suggest that because it it means there's no greater good with the vaccine. It means there's no greater good if the vaccine is not preventing transmission or preventing infection. It is only making your symptoms less bad if you inevitably get COVID. It means that the vaccine is not for the greater good. It's not helping other... You getting the vaccine is not helping other people. It's not contributing to any sort of herd immunity. It's not doing anything. This is like... We would have the same lessened mortality rates if you told people, hey, you should stop drinking and driving, or hey, you should stop smoking. But imagine shutting down the country with wild mandates because you are going to ban smoking. We need to save lives. Smoking might hurt you personally, although it's not going to really hurt anybody else, but it's going to hurt you personally. We need an anti-smoking mandate and uh, we will are going to fire everybody and shut down the supply chain and destroy the cohesiveness of this country because you might hurt yourself with smoking. That's Absolutely insane, but that is the best analogy for what this vaccine does. All the vaccine does, getting the vaccine is only a selfish move to prevent yourself from being laid low by COVID at best, which I don't really even believe. But let's go with what Dr. Fauci and all these people say. The vaccine only prevents you from being hurt from, the, from COVID. More than, it makes it more survivable because a lot of people are surviving it. So according to Fauci and them, it makes it more likely you're going to survive COVID. Okay, well, what if I want to take, if, if I want to take that risk, who cares? Why is me feeling like I should or shouldn't take that risk worth destroying the supply chain for, worth holding the country hostage for, worth all of these business potentially wrecking their own profits for? It's wild. And I I cannot understand it. In fact, it makes more sense that the vaccine is some horrific dystopian like money grab by Big Pharma or like New World Order mass sterilization scheme than just they're this incompetent. Like, We're in that place where the wild conspiracy theories make more sense than the reality. Like the wild conspiracy theories, it's like, oh, it's the UN's pushing it to, you know, sterilize the planet. That actually makes almost more sense because that's a logical reason why you'd be doing this rather than just we're going to exercise all this power and completely destroy our credibility, you know, for a vaccine that doesn't really work at all. Yeah. Also, we all invested in Pfizer last year and we're all making billions of dollars. Well, Pfizer is the
0: um, fifth uh, largest amount of stock that is owned by members of Congress. So
1: that does. deserve. Well, there you point go. Out. There you go. OK, maybe it's not a giant U.N. sterilization campaign, but if it's but if Pfizer is the number one stock owned by members of Congress and N- probably all the staff, it's number, number five, five. If it's in the five, that means how much stock is owned, not just by members of Congress, but their families, their wives, their friends, their their business partners, all the people that they can essentially pass insider trading info to have to own a huge chunk of Pfizer stock. And they are all – did they all get the tip off last year? It's like, listen, we're going to use COVID to mandate this free vaccine that we're going to pay for with taxpayer money, and uh, Pfizer is going to make $100 billion next year. So get in on the ground floor, everybody, because this is, uh, is going to be a, a good one. <laughs> well, and you know, it's funny because,
0: it, like – the the reality of of some of what you you said was basically it would almost be preferable for these conspiracy theories to be true, and the idea of it being like mass sterilization or or you know whatever else, whatever or what other, a, whatever whatever yeah, your new world order, great reset,
1: yeah, kind of nonsense.
0: Because the other option is that our Political elites, the people who we've been told are the smartest people in the room and are the adults in charge because we're apparently all toddlers, um, are this dumb. That our country is run by a bunch of clowns who have literally no
1: reckless. like like they they have dumb. It's it's that it's that they're this reckless. Yeah, well, well, reckless and arrogant. It's like, we're going to destroy the ability of citizens to trust anything the government, anything doctors say, and we're going to do it all for greed. Like, that's so wildly arrogant and reckless. It's amazing. And, you know, it's funny
0: because uh, seeing some of the debates that are going on and some of the discussions that you see on social media, um, one thing that that I can't get over is... uh, Especially from there, there are absolutely, there are still some conservatives who feel the need to virtue signal, right? Because they just, they, they just need approval from the left. Um, And some of that virtue signaling is like, oh, well, if you look at hospitalizations, actually, you know, the, the far larger amount of hospitalizations are people that are unvaccinated. You know what I don't see? You know what metric I don't see is overall hospitalizations, I constantly see people sharing the difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated hospitalizations. What I don't see is whether or not hospitalizations overall have gone down. And the reason why I bring that up is that would kill their narrative. Imagine it. Like if yeah. let's say that, you know, last month hospitalizations were 200 percent lower or some crazy amount than they were a year ago. That would kill the narrative of we're facing a you know pandemic of the unvaccinated. Because people are still doing better. But they don't—they yeah. won't share that. And I'm just, I am tired of the stupidity, but especially with, with the idea that the, the reason why we're bringing all of this up is this appears to be, uh, because we discussed it earlier in the week, was what is the actual cause of all of these supply chain issues? And all evidence points to, <coughs> sorry, all evidence points to it is the response of the government to coronavirus. Whether, whether it's the lockdowns having a sustaining effect. Mm-hmm. Because I will say this much. There are a lot of people who were working at trucking companies. We see it uh, here in Virginia with the school system. There were a lot of bus mm. drivers. Here's just an example. When schools shut down and went virtual they laid off all of the bus drivers Mm. and they did so in some ways so they could collect unemployment. Well, a lot of these bus drivers found other jobs and now we have a massive bus driver like school bus driver um, shortage in a lot of counties throughout Virginia. Similar. I imagine truck drivers had a very similar situation where you may not have needed to truck as like if, if you're delivering supplies to say uh, companies and things like that. Well, with these lockdowns, how many, how many drivers were laid off and then just went and found different jobs. So maybe there's oh, a driver sure. shortage because of that, but it is also provable by looking at publications that belong to the trucking industry. Uh, by people who are working in supply industries, whether or not it's cargo ships, container ships, and things like that, that are absolutely saying, oh no, we're actually on strike because we don't want mandatory vaccines. And what's amazing about it is not only is the media lying and like, like claiming it's, well, it's a worker shortage. And they're not telling you why the worker shortage is happening because the media absolutely cannot report any negative effect from vaccine mandates because Joe Biden wants them and the media works for Joe Biden. That's how America works now. That's the way it is. But so they won't report. They won't say that they'll call it a worker shortage. The other crazy part about it is the left at the same time is getting hashtags to trend on Twitter and places like that with Striketober. Because they're still going to pretend to be big supporters of labor, but they're just leaving out the simple fact that a lot of these strikes are tied to the fact that they don't want to mandate vaccines. Hilariously enough, one of the biggest contributors to the Democrat Party who does not want to get mandatory, does not want to have mandatory vaccines is the teachers union.
1: (laughs) Uh, Same with the U.S. Postal Service, I've heard, has not yet rolled out their vaccine mandate because too many of the postal carriers have said they will quit. Right.
0: And like, like we said earlier this week, the reason why the media will not report these things is because it has to be uh, the unvaccinated have to be the caricature that the left makes up in their brain. It's the truck driving backwoods hick with a MAGA hat on.
1: Yeah. Additionally, you bring up an interesting point. And I'm think so I think about truck drivers, not so much necessarily teachers, but a lot of these people that are critical to, to the U.S. supply chain, truck drivers, warehouse workers, logistics company employees, absolutely critical to the supply chain. But those people also are not, And I want to put this delicately. They're not hyper specialized and professional level jobs. As in, you said the bus drivers, when they had a, when they, they basically laid them off, they just found other jobs. I imagine a lot of us truckers might be like, well, I like driving my semi truck, but if that dries up, I could go find other work doing something else. Mm -hmm. It's like, same with people that work at a warehouse. You're not necessarily super, I don't think, I wouldn't imagine, super dialed into only working in that field. Like, I imagine a bunch of U.S. warehouses, probably U.S. ports, said, well, we're doing vaccine mandates now because the U.S. government has undue, has, the U.S. government has a lot of uh, meddling in U.S. ports. I can see them mandating the vaccine for warehouse and logistics workers at U.S. ports. I bet a lot of them went, eh, I don't need to be here. I can work, I have' been skilled enough to work many different jobs, so I'm gonna just gonna go do that. And that's an interesting way to leverage the regime is a lot of these people, like you know truck drivers, logistics workers, uh, police, firemen, they can get other jobs. They it's like the, it's the um, you would almost say it's it's people in more professional or high tech fields that are more tied in with a specific industry. Oh, it's just an interesting ob- observance. It's that you can't really like, like how hard could you really lean on truck drivers before they just went, yeah, I'm going to go drive a truck for a construction company in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, or yeah, I can drive a lot of things and I don't have to keep driving this trunk truck that services a U.S. port where I have to be vaccinated. So I'm going to go drive a truck for something else somewhere. I can, I can drive anything. Lots of people need stuff driven. So goodbye. Or heck, I bet a lot of them would probably probably think I'm just going to go do something totally different. I have a whole set of skills like. I don't know, I'm just be it's an interesting way, cause, interesting thing that a lot of them felt free, like and this this is an, a, 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 a kind of an interesting point. A lot of these people that are striking might feel comfortable striking because they know that the job they're currently working, if they get completely fired from it, they're going to be OK. Now, I don't know about pilots, but I imagine all the people that worked on like Washington state ferries. I bet a lot of them are it's like, OK, so you were the guy that loads cars onto a ferry. I'm sure that you can find another job somewhere else and it's and you don't have to be tied to that specific employment. So you can leverage that because you're essentially free. You're free from the system to do whatever you want. I don't know. It's just an interesting kind of side piece.
0: Well, and, and for anybody who wants to have the debate about, you know, um, whether or not vaccine mandates have anything to do with it, because that's going that's going to be the left's take on it. You know, they're going to claim that that's all a right wing conspiracy. What's interesting about it, though, is we've already seen this happen in other countries. I don't know if many people saw this on social media, but it does exist of truckers striking in Australia by literally blocking highways, just lines upon lines, upon lines of tractor trailers stopped in protest of the mandates that were going on in Australia. Also in Italy, there were protests at the ports against mandatory vaccination because that's government wide. So we've, seen this happening in other countries and right now it, it appears we're just playing the game
1: of oh well that wouldn't happen here right yeah i, I mean and why wouldn't it yeah like, it, like and, and, the, and this is actually a bigger bigger point is because the media is being so careful to make sure no one reports on these things i think a lot of people have the perception that it's not or couldn't happen and probably intentionally because the media does not want us to know the last thing they want the American people to know is that they can do similar kinds of protests and shut down very important things to the country in response to what the government tries to do to them.
0: Well, and you you asked me this or well, you you made this statement earlier uh, this week to me when we were talking and and it, this is basically the most prescient thing if all of the issues that we're having right now if the shortages that people are seeing if the all the ships that are sitting out there um you know basically anchored off the coasts if this was because of vaccine mandates
1: would the media tell you no no they would not
0: and that's a question that people have to ask like they they need we are at the point now where we're, I've actually said this for about a year and a half or more now, which is we're no longer at the point where we're debating whether or not the news is biased. It's the amount of bias that we debate now. Um, that, that question's been answered, but like nobody gave credit to anyone on the right for having pointed it out. But the fact of the matter is, is you now must ask the question is, would the news report this? if it happened. And and the answer is no, we watched them lie to everyone when it came to what was going on with Southwest airlines. Now, maybe, maybe people can debate and say that, well, you don't have direct proof that this was related to vaccine mandates because you just have a statement from Twitter. Well, what we do know is that it wasn't the weather. Right. Because other airlines were not affected. So, We know that it wasn't the thing you claimed to be. Now, whether it's my thing, I guess you could try to debate it. But what you can't debate is that the news lied. Exactly. Now, the proof that I would obviously use is awfully weird that when I said that it was because of vaccine mandates, the CEO of the company had to come out and say, oh, don't worry, I won't fire you for this. That just seems a little, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation, but (laughs) so... Now, <laughs> one of the things that did come out this week because people were talking about supply chains, they're talking about all of the stuff that's going on, was the fact that Pete Buttigieg, who's the Secretary of Transportation, I want to pause there for a second because I, I'm glad, I'm glad that people are getting to the point of realizing that your Secretary of Transportation has literally no experience nor qualification to be the secretary of transportation. But I also want to remind everyone that none of those people are ever qualified to be those things. Political appointees are not qualified for their jobs. I don't know a better Uh, way to say it. Like Mitch McConnell's wife was, the secretary of transportation under Donald Trump. Yeah. Now, granted she does own a logistics company.
1: So at least that's markedly better, but she didn't get the job because of that. Well, and this sadly, I think a lot of people don't fully recognize it, which, cause it sounds too crazy to be true. This includes things like the director of the CIA, the director of the FBI, like P things where you think no 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 they would have definitely have a serious professional person with years of experience in that field, in that position. They wouldn't just choose someone for political reasons, right? Right? <laughs> no, they they do. Most of the time, that person is not exactly the right person for the job, but the right person for you politically for the job.
0: Well, and, and let's let's just be honest about that. Um This is Pete Buttigieg got his position in the administration specifically because there was a deal cut with Pete Buttigieg heading into Super Tuesday. Heading into Super Tuesday, Joe Biden did not look good. It was very questionable on how he was going to do in the primary and then all of a sudden you had Pete Buttigieg edge and Elizabeth Warren drop out who were the people that were probably going to create a large schism in how the delegates were going to go. And then the next thing you know, Pete Buttigieg edge gets named for a for an appointed position. These things are related. They were I said it I said it back way back during uh, during those primaries, I said Pete Buttigieg edge would get a position in the administration
1: for stepping down. Which is extremely strange because why would you feel the need to give anything to Pete Buttigieg? What dirt does he have on Joe Biden? He doesn't need dirt. They needed, well, I mean, maybe he does, but he
0: doesn't need dirt. It got him out of the field. People wouldn't vote for him and then inextricably,
1: they would probably vote for Joe Biden. Yeah, but then why even reward him? Who cares about Pete Buttigieg? Well, you got to give him a reason to get out. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but then you don't have to validate that. It just seems
0: oh, like it I seems
1: see. like you were doing it a lot more so because of the interests behind Pete judge wanted to feel they had a way in to the administration more than Pete Buttigieg himself.
0: Oh yeah, no, it's a hundred percent rolling of a you know hey because what basically, it basically is yeah
1: what you're guaranteeing is Pete judge's donors mm-hmm. and enablers. Had a line to the president, like, okay, well, make sure your guy has second transportation so that if you need to talk to Joe Biden, you can, you have a intermediary close in the administration to go through. It's like a pay for play scheme,
0: right? It's like buying a Hunter Biden painting. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you get that exactly. Hunter Biden art. Yeah. <laughs> Which, if I had the money, I would buy a Hunter Biden painting, um, and the only thing I would ask for return is for Joe Biden to tell the truth. Uh, hmm. Yeah. So, so then, then I would, you know, basically be funding the destruction of the Biden administration because he would have to like, no, so go that, out there. That'd, that'd, be,
1: that'd be a good question. Is, is like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, like one of those, those, you know, logical traps where it's it's like one of them always tells the truth and one of them always lies and you don't know which it is. So you have to, <laughs> <laughs> do you it's like well, one lies but hates you and the other tells the truth but wants to lie to you so like which i don't know so it's, it's got to be something weird
0: yeah so so people people were upset because uh pete boot edge edge has been basically on paternity leave for like two months or something crazy like that and uh, um it's funny because uh, obviously so the, the real News there is that once again, I'll I'll stack it this way. Once again, during a crisis, someone, uh, the person who should be handling said crisis in the administration is on vacation. So I just want to remind you, Joe Biden was on vacation when Afghanistan fell. During the border crisis, Kamala Harris was filming a video for YouTube Um, for a YouTube original video with hired child actors, they literally had to pay kids to make her interesting. Um, and then Pete boot edge during a giant supply chain crisis is on paternity leave. Um, because him and his husband bought some kids. Um, yeah, is going to like infuriate people. They're going to be like, Oh my God, how do you, well, I mean, that's what an adoption is, but okay. I mean, I'm not against adoption. Uh, Uh, i'm not you know i mean maybe maybe for them uh you know like i i just i just want to know you're on paternity leave for for what exactly (laughs) like it's a gay couple is on paternity leave this isn't even like this isn't a mom breastfeeding
1: now you know, it's really weird and I, it, it's really weird and super gross and I hate it. The the part um, the, the
0: part that makes me laugh about it is what should be brought up is the fact that once again somebody in the administration was on some sort of vacation of any kind. Also, you know, if people didn't know, that's that's the other thing is. Nobody actually knew that he was that he was gone. Uh the the news started reporting it because everyone was like, "Hey, what's the secretary of transportation have to say about this? And then they got a response this week, which was like, Oh yeah, he's been on paternity leave for like two months. And so the fact of the matter is, is that nobody even knew he was gone. So the reportable here is the fact that if you're the secretary of a department and you're gone for two months and no one notices, do you need to
1: exist? Yeah. Okay. That's actually a good point is I think that this reveals for a lot of the U S government bureaucracy is that this idea of the deep state that's just actually running things it's all of these people that were elected and appointed by elected all these the, the, these people that were elected the empo- the appointees that those elected people brought in that other elected people confirmed the essentially the whole mechanism for the us people to influence their own government is subverted because all those people are just pointless Mm-hmm. Like, the, like Joe Biden's not making decisions. Somebody behind Joe Biden is making his decisions for him. Pete Buttigieg is not running the Department of Transportation. Somebody else is running the Department of Transportation, and he's just a figurehead. It's that the people that the American, the, the people that the American Americans have elected are only serving in figurehead type roles and people they didn't elect are actually running the country. And that is very concerning. And that this is what this whole administration is highlighting, is that that is a reality of our situation, that everything is essentially run without the input of the American people and seemingly not for our benefit either, which is really concerning.
0: Yeah. for, For those of you who don't understand how the whole appointment system works is the president of the United States picks his cabinet secretaries for the executive branch. Right. So like Department of Transportation specifically talking about Pete Buttigieg. Then that goes to the Senate and then the Senate confirms that person for the secretary that, you know, for the secretary of the department of transportation. So the Senate confirmed Pete Buttigieg. That includes Republicans. Republicans what? voted for that as well.
1: Yeah,
0: and the dumbest part, the most obscene part of that entire situation is that for however long our Senate has basically never asked the question of what even qualifies you to be
1: here. And that's because they
0: all play the game.
1: Yeah. They, they all know it's like all of our elected representatives, Republicans and Democrats alike all know that this is all a sham And they've just been lying to the American people for decades. But because they're all in on it, they don't want to ruin the game for themselves.
0: Yeah, like the reality of things is these secretaries just basically help implement policies from the administration. Right. Like, I get that. Like, I, I understand that we don't need them to be necessarily experts because they're just administrators. Like, they're not really that important.
1: I mean, um, I would want them to be experts. If we were a well, serious country that viewed ourselves seriously, we would want people who are experts to be running things.
0: Well, and that is that is kind of the, the, the point here, right? Because like Alexander Hamilton was appointed by uh, George Washington and he literally invented our banking system.
1: Yeah. In fact, you can probably go back in history and look at the vast majority – a lot of political appointees were a lot more competent or experts in their fields until a lot of the modern era when the bureaucratic systems caught up and no longer needed an effective single administrator to enforce policy and were essentially the same system between administrations kind of running on autopilot. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah. does, and it's, all, it's all being run to propagate itself, not for the American people. Right, because those those people aren't
0: tied to, you know, th- those people right. are not tied to the, the American people. They're not appointed. They're not any of those things, mm-hmm. right? They're not tied no. to the American people, the success of the American people. They're tied to their administrations. And what's going to be really funny about this is, you know, if people start start, you know, pulling that thread, it's going to end up being like, well, members of the department of transportation are absolute patriots. Okay. Yeah. Like, sure. Please, please explain the patriotic duty of the department of transportation. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I mean, I'm not like, I don't, I don't have any personal ire against, you know, people from the department of transportation, but it's definitely one right. of those situations that it's like, Okay, That's a little weird. Like I'm okay to like, I I, I don't know. The point is, is just that like, I don't know. It's one of those things that it's a bunch of bureaucrats. It is a bunch of bureaucrats that are running everything. Nobody knew Pete Edge was gone. That should say something. I think it's a bit of a deflection for the for people who want to try to debate whether or not paternity leave is okay. I think that that's a deflection Mm -hmm. from no, this guy was missing and nobody noticed Mm -hmm. that. I think that that's the actual reportable here is this guy was missing and nobody noticed. That's the reportable here. It's not about this, that, or the other thing. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Sure. They, they want they want to make it about paternity leave because they want to be able to turn anybody who criticizes it into like you know they just don't like the gays right that's why
1: well now, and that was the immediate deflection when there was any sort of demand for hey the Department of Tech and like this guy should be doing his job it was well you just hate the gays. Right. Don't, well, don't look at the man behind the curtain. Only look at the homophobe standing over there.
0: Well, that's why they put those people in those positions as that's well. That's exactly why they right. put those people in those positions. You know, the, the diversity hiring adds that extra layer of you can't criticize people or else you're racist.
1: Right. So, I mean, that's a good point because that's a... That's why they really like having these sorts of people in this environment of critical race realism, whatever we want to call it. It's really useful to have a, a company, an administrative branch, whatever, staffed with diverse and inclusive people because then if you have any criticism, you can always def- ref- deflect to, well, it's is actually all for race from racism rather than dealing with, whatever issue if you if you're a company you'd be like oh we're totally gonna have the our head of media or public relations be a immigrant woman of color who's also jewish because then if anybody has a problem with our company we can just say actually they just hate our spokesperson because they're the evil racist problem this is why our company is committed to black lives matter i mean it's know, a it's, great strategy
0: you know it's really fascinating about what what you just brought up there so you brought up like critical race theory and everything else. One of the one of the biggest deflections, especially with all of the um, this, like what we talked about on Wednesday, where we brought up uh, the uh, issues with schools, um, you know, people protesting critical race theory and all that. They're trying to turn them into domestic terrorists. Well, one of the biggest pushbacks when you bring up critical race theory is critical race theory is just something that's taught in law schools. Like, have you seen, have you seen that debate? Yeah. You know, what's fascinating about that being the, like the liberal response, like, oh, we don't teach it in schools, which they absolutely do. There's proof that they do. People who claim that it's not being taught in schools, like uh, Terry McAuliffe, who's running for governor again here in Virginia was like, it's not even taught in schools. It's taught in law school. He actually passed something when he was a governor the last time to teach critical race theory in schools. The funniest part about that is they think it's a win to say it's only taught in law schools. The majority Mm -hmm. of our administrators in the United States government went to those law schools. That's actually more horrifying. Oh, this thing that's really destructive to the country and basically turns everyone into a racist and makes everyone hate America? Yeah, that was only taught at the schools that the majority of your political representatives graduated from. The majority of directors of the departments that run this country graduated from. The majority of the people who make policy decisions at your state, your county, your local, and your national level graduated from. That's the only place... That teaches this destructive narrative that America is bad and should be destroyed. Oh, well, that yeah. makes it better. Thanks. Like, Hooray. Hooray. Thanks for letting us know that you did, in fact, infiltrate everything. You mean yeah. the lawyers? By the, Sorry, this, this is a bit of a tangent, but it does remind me of I remember back when I was a kid, when it was okay for everyone to talk about how lawyers are awful. And have you noticed how we stopped doing that? I mean, it is true. Lawyers are the Mm. worst. I mean, on an individual level, I know lawyers and they're perfectly fine people, but, and lawyers are necessary in society, but we don't have to like them. We don't have to like the people whose job it is To basically make everything so bureaucratic and so whiny because everyone's worried about liability. Yeah. Like, you don't have to like that they exist. Not everyone's a criminal defense attorney. The majority of lawyers are people who go, well, we should probably fire that guy, but he might sue us. So I guess we're going to keep the guy in your office. That's absolutely an asshole because he might sue us. A lawyer did that to you. Hooray.
1: Thanks, lawyers.
0: Do you know why your kids still have to wear masks in school? It's not actually because of the virus. It's because lawyers sat there and said, well, someone might be able to sue if Timmy gets COVID. So mask mandates.
1: Yeah. What a terrible, terrible, just being ruled by lawyers is just one of the worst forms of tyranny.
0: No, it's it's absolutely true. Like, I mean, 100%, like dumb legal liability, all the the fact that people can just sue for some of the dumbest crap imaginable i mean it's it's all of this we we've all seen it. it this is one of those aspects of society that everyone can kind of agree is garbage but nobody really wants to have like the serious talk about it you know it's like we have to put handrails up at the grand canyon not not because people were falling off the Grand Canyon and dying, but because one person did and some a-hole lawyer was like, I'll get a million dollar settlement. Now there's handrails at national parks because th- that, by the way, are also keeping us from taking stupid people out of society.
1: <laughs> well, it's, it is a it just confirms the we have to tailor everything to the weakest among us because those every because everyone's has an equal say under the law it means that the weakest people get the most outsized level of essentially influence because no because that that slavery to these legal requirements allows no allows assembly allows people to find exploits in them but does not allow good people to stand up for things that are good because, well, that might be illegal, and how, what about this? Like, you don't have 20 pages worth of legalese bullshit behind this, so we can't possibly follow it or implement it. You're like, yeah, but they have 20 pages of legalese bullshit, and they're doing very evil things. It's like, yeah, but they said in there that they're not responsible for the evil things they do, and we can't fight that with Ah, oh, geez, they just have to win. It's terrible. I hate
0: it. There's 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 a lot of situations like that that actually get really um. Well, I mean it's it's fascinating uh to 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 a lot of extents, just because of what people are doing to try to avoid. Like for example, um I don't know if you saw this, Alan. Maybe you did, but there was a video that went out from Kamala Harris that's going to play at several black churches in Virginia where she explicitly is campaigning for Terry McAuliffe for governor. Yeah. This is a I massive you do that. This is a massive violation of campaign finance laws. Churches are not supposed to directly support any sort of candidate as an aspect of being a 501c3.
2: Hmm.
0: Hilariously, there's a reason why they're doing it and it is specifically because they're going to push this out. The Democrats are going to push this out. The Republicans aren't going to fight it because the only way for them to fight it is explicitly this. Looking at whether or not churches should still have a 501c3 status, whether they should be tax exempt. And this is just mm-hmm. a, another example of how the left is going to weaponize conservative values against conservatives. Yep. Now, I thought you guys stood up for the rights of churches. Yeah. That's oh, so you, what don't, gonna say. you don't want them to be tax exempt. Now, if you don't mind, think about that for a second, Alan, and um, uh, talk a little bit about uh, religious exemption exemptions when it comes to the vaccine.
1: Well, I bet a lot of people are... are th- have taken the line of, well, I want well, I'm going to use a religious exemption against the vaccine. That traditionally is how some of these things have kind of worked. And I think that they're setting people up for, well, we're going to put people in a position where they're going to have to find some reason, some legalese reason to resist our vaccine mandate. And they're going to try to use the existing mechanism of religious exemption, and that's only going to put us in a position where we can now attack churches like we've always wanted. It's a lot of how the left operates is the the reaction is counter is what is it? Action reaction. That's it It is the reaction is always more important than the action. And it's also straight out of Saul Alinsky where – Roughly speaking, we're going to just beat the dog until it bites you, and then you'll have a good excuse to kill the dog. Basically, that's what they're setting everything up for, is they're doing things with, like, Kamala Harris campaigning through these churches, which is blatantly illegal, and you can't—you're not supposed to do it under IRS rules, but in order to enforce it, they then have to turn the horrific eye of Sauron of the— U.S. government on churches and then open themselves. up to, Oh well, you don't want that bad thing to happen that we're totally causing. I guess you want us to, you know, take away all the religious exemptions, or we should st- we should tax your churches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a. I have to hand it to these to these people. Is they are very very cunning with how they pat- conduct themselves and conduct this war against the American people. It's. It is well thought out. Now, what doesn't make sense is that they seem Rilla, so arrogant as to be able to do this so openly, feeling as if there's not going to be any counterreaction. And I don't know about that. I think what we're seeing with all of these truckers, uh, truckers, ferry workers, firemen, police, all just saying, no, I'm not going to do it about the vaccine mandate. That is very powerful. I think and if the more people just say no, just say no, just say no to their vaccine, that's all you have to do. And it's going to paralyze the country, which is it should and good. It's like we we need another a black swan event to break the hold these people have. It needs to be so obvious that that's what's happening. And Actually, it's, it's hard because the media gets in the way, but I'm certain that for at least this uh, thing with the churches, when people, when the right wing criticizes it, the left's response is going to be, conservatives pounce on churches, just just trying to be free and not be constrained by government rules. Oh, <laughs> these people are very, very awful, very cunning. So we'll see what happens with all that. I, they are technically violating IRS rules, so hopefully that's going to work and well, I don't, I don't see Republicans don't doing anything, but that's my I know, cynicism. I know, God, they're so useless. Ugh. they'll, they'll like, complain about it. All of our problems it. come back to the fact that the people we have as overt political representation, who are supposed to be stopping the bad things from happening, who we voted in office specifically to do that, seem unable or unwilling to do what is necessary and exercise the legal force they have against our enemies which oh, exactly if it's not treason it's at well, well basically there's, there's two things it's either it's cowardice in the face of the enemy or it's treason i mean what is it it's either desertion or treason which one is it it's like either way at the end of the day it doesn't really matter what matters is that we are being left out to drive by after support
0: yeah Now, so now that we're heading into the second hour, uh, we'll bring our guest on. So our guest, and I hope I don't mess up his last name, uh, but Joe Dolio is a Marine Corps veteran. He is also a defensive firearms instructor. He uh, knows a lot of martial arts that I'm not going to attempt to actually pronounce except for Krav Maga, Um, but also he has written a couple of books Uh, One of which the the main book is the baseline training manual known as Tactical Wisdom, which is a book that I picked up. Um, And as you all know, I don't endorse things and I don't sell things on this program unless it's something personal to myself. It is a book that I have started reading. I was very impressed. So we felt a need to hunt Joe down um, and find him hiding, I'm assuming, in a bunker somewhere. And have him come on because of all of these supply chain issues that we're talking about. We are talking about all sorts of things when it comes to the economy. Um, We watched the collapse of different cities to include one that, you know, Alan lives in the co-host, you know, things literally on fire. And this is somebody who is coming in as an expert on how to defend yourself, protect your family, but prepare yourself to be independent. And that should be a big thing. So, Joe, welcome to the
2: program. Hey, thanks. Uh, glad you glad you had a chance to get me on here. Uh, and you didn't uh, you didn't mess up the last name. That's pretty cool. That's that's actually quite rare. That's a
0: that's a huge win for me. But and so, real quick question for you: um, you are you in Michigan?
2: I am. Okay. I am.
0: I we we're from the same area. I just, uh, sorry. That's a very exciting thing. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to out you. I'm just, uh, I grew up in Michigan, so I, I saw something once where you mentioned it and I'm going to brag about it on the program that we're both from the same state. Um, no, but thanks for coming awesome. on. And, and, and one thing that I want to bring up is one thing that I like about your book is, uh, I mentioned this to you when I asked you to come onto the program is survival, whether it's wilderness survival, whether or not it's it's what people like to refer to as prepping, everyone starts in the middle, much like firearms. There's no good, if, you know, if you're a regular person, you're out in, in suburbia, you're starting to kind of wake up and getting worried and concerned. the The worry is... Like people start looking into survival stuff or what What do I need to do to prepare? What do I do in a disaster? Everyone starts in the middle and it scares a lot of people away. I've heard a lot of members of this audience and people I talk to that say, I really want to get into this, but I don't know where to start. So my first question for you would be, what is the best place? Someone who's just, they they go to their job every day, they do their work. Where, what's the best place for them to start? when it comes to getting prepared to survive without the government and infrastructure and society? Absolutely.
2: Well, the first thing is uh, a lot of people are going to get out their pants and gonna be like, Oh, he's about to give me a list of merchandise and property and stuff to get. That's not it. The first thing that everyone needs to do is work on their awareness. The biggest problem that we have in preparedness is people will tell you, Oh, I've got, I got four years worth of food. I got 20,000 rounds of ammo. I got all these optics. I say, okay, but who is the closest leftist to your house? Who's the biggest <laughs> leftist agitator in your neighborhood? I'm sorry, what? So that's a piece of awareness you need to know about, right? Who runs the local car theft gang in your neighborhood? I don't know. But when the power goes out and the police aren't coming, these are vital pieces of information you need to have. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. i I mean,
0: definitely like, yeah, an agitator who's going to, who's going to basically create the marauding gang that's in everybody's like imagination of the collapse of society.
2: Right. And, and, and and nobody starts there. So awareness is where you need to start by doing what we call an area study where you're learning all that you can learn about your local area or the area where you work and the area in between it and learning who the agitators are, who the problem locations are, you need to know the high-crime neighborhoods between your work and home because you might have to make that trip on foot. And wouldn't it be great to know that even though it's much shorter to cut straight through there, it's probably a lot smarter to go the long way around. So so awareness is where you need to start. And that, that's mentioned in my book, very first chapter, is how to look, look things through and make a better plan. Um, let me use two examples here real quick, if we, if we have just a couple minutes. Um, mm-hmm. The first one is in the most recent conflict between Israel – And and Hamas, uh, there's a story of a woman in a small town there where the rioting first began. And she tells the story that everyone in their neighborhood, it was a mixed neighborhood between Jews and Muslims, right? And everyone got along. Their kids played. They held neighborhood parties. They had barbecues together. Everyone got along great. But that night when the conflict started and the Hamas uh, rioters came to their neighborhood – Two of their neighbors ran out of their house, ran down to the end of the block to the Hamas people and pointed out the Jewish houses on the block. Your neighbors are your neighbors and friends until it's convenient not to be. Right. So these Mm -hmm. people probably just took the opportunity to say, hey, they're going to come and burn down our whole neighborhood. But how about if instead we give them a better target than our house? And you have to understand that that these people who are your friends today and you're willing to share your information with today – might not be the same people three weeks into an event when their children haven't eaten in four days. Right. So understand mm-hmm. that you got to guard that information and that your neighbors can turn on you in an instant. Another piece of awareness comes from um, the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting. There were 70 something people shot because they all turned around and ran out the entrance. They came in, which is where the shooter was. Oh. Um, and they all ran past several emergency exits on the way out. So, that's my other huge piece of awareness advice, is know where the emergency exits are everywhere you are, because you don't know when something's gonna happen, right? And human nature is to turn around and go back out the door you came in, but that might expose you to more danger than going out an exit you didn't even think about.
0: Alan, you sound so, really shocked by that piece of information.
1: Well, not so much shocked as that makes total sense. And I, can, I had not thought of that before. I hadn't really heard that piece of information before. But hearing it, it just confirms a bunch of other things that I've learned and is one of those little pieces of information that you hear and go, oh, of course they did. I can see how people, when you're in a kind of panic situation, default to the lowest level of cognition possible, which is get out. How do I know to get out? Uh, it's the way I came in. And then you just get sort of situational blindness to all these other things. And I've I've heard of that that same situation happening in a bunch of other things, but I hadn't thought of it in terms of, say, a mass shooting where people run towards the entrance or run towards danger because they're basically just blind to all these other possibilities. They are just reacting as fast as possible.
2: Right on. And, and that's where awareness will help break that. Right. If every time I walk into a place, uh, you do what I call in my books, the tactical pause. Anytime I walk into a business, I step out of the doorway. I take a quick glance around and see what everybody is up to and what they're doing. And then I look for the emergency exits. It takes about a second and a half, but it could mean the difference between life and death.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, in, in, in that reference, so like a lot of this from I, I, I think, you know, when Not in a bad way, but like, uh, you know, Alan and I and yourself from like the veteran standpoint, there's always that talk about, you know, you take the pause, you listen, um, you know, there's several different methods that people use uh, to kind of develop situational awareness in the concept of when you walk in to a building right from a from a tactical perspective. You know, there's always that look around you kind of uh, somewhat count heads. You look for, you know, path of least resistance, you know, exits and things like that. What are something that civilians will look because I, I don't when I think of myself in a civilian situation, I think about where am I going to sit? You know, what would what would a good you know style of movement be? How do I get people kind of out of, you know, a direct line of sight if somebody were to, say, come into a restaurant with a firearm? But. Okay, I think about that. That's very tactical and combat heavy. But from the other aspect of things to worry about, what are things you look for in a civilian setting that aren't maybe direct combat?
2: Well, you you want to look at the agitated state of people, right? COVID has made people angry. And so everywhere you go, um, I'm sure that we can all come up with a story in the last seven days of an agitated person in public. So the way you get that is by looking at people's faces. I know it's counterintuitive. Tactically, we always say, look at the hands because the hands are what kills you. The hands are what you look at after you've looked at the faces, right? right? Facial, you you can't hide your facial expression. You can't hide your emotion, right? So come in and look at everyone's faces and see who's in what mental state. It adds maybe a second to your to your quick glance around. But again, it can tell you what sort of interactions are going on. So. I'm driving to work in the morning, I get out of my car, I go in to get that cup of coffee, and I glance towards the clerk. Just taking a look and seeing if there's one person in front of the clerk and the clerk isn't going to tell me much. But when I look at the clerk's face and his eyes are wide and I look at the other person and his face is tight and angry, there's probably something very bad happening, right? So a quick Mm -hmm. face check, a quick glance uh, will tell you a little bit more about what's going on in any situation. Um, The other thing that i tell people in civilian uh, settings is, like, when you go to a store, the most normal place to find people is walking down the main aisles. So I always stick to the outside of a store, right? I kind of walk around the perimeter walls to get to where I'm going uh, because any threat that's going to be in that store is going to originate probably in the center. Mm -hmm. So it's just a little odds game I play. It also keeps me closer to the emergency exits.
0: I cut through produce. That's my my my, my go to.
2: Yes. Bad yeah. guy's hanging out with lettuce. All right, I got you.
0: <laughs> so like it's just I always I always go through the produce. Now sometimes actually that's just because there's less people there and they get out of my way, I can get where I'm going faster. But like you kind of pick that side, right? Um from from the from the reference of you know, just so in everyone's day to day lives, just being kind of aware of of potential threats that are there. What's the second step? Because one of the things um, that I I find entertaining, and I'm not trying to ridicule anybody or bring them down, but sitting in like forums and chat rooms with like Second Amendment people, everybody kind of has that dream of being the hero of, you know, no shit there I was and then suddenly the guy came in and I took him down with my Smith and Wesson, all right? You know, I I that that's when I got my Glock out and that's what I trained for. But in reality, as someone who is an actual defense instructor, somebody whose job it is to train people how to survive, what's your recommendation to your average civilian in the situ- in a in an aggressive situation in public? What is the actual thing a survivalist should do
2: that wasn't written in Hollywood? Boy, I'll tell you, uh, this is going to be a case of do as I say, not as I do. Um, (laughs) And I have it spelled it on my book. I'm the kind of guy everyone knows is that that I cannot let an injustice go unhandled in my presence. But in all reality, what I personally recommend is uh, just like I said in my book, you drive in, you see these three guys getting out of their car, they're putting on masks, they look sketchy, they hit the store front door and they split up and go goes throughout the store. Obviously, nothing good is going to happen. The best thing the average civilian can do at this point is put their car in reverse, turn around and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Now, that may seem cold, right? But you know what? There are There are people assigned to do that and that clerk is probably more aware than you're going to be because that's what they deal with every single day. Um, mm-hmm. the, the best way um, the best way to put it is, is, is what I keep saying in, in, in both my books that I have out now and in my third book that's coming out soon is your role is to survive. It is not to be the hero, right? Um, and, and while we all want to be that white knight riding to save the villagers, it, it's better in the long run for you to at least survive to fight another day. Uh, you are not a police officer. It's not your job to forcibly get involved in everything, um, especially right now. Now, a year ago, I'd have had a different opinion. Mm-hmm. But right now, with the current legal environment, self-defense laws are are irrelevant. It doesn't matter what the law says. They're charging you anyway if they decide that the person committing the crime that you shot is more morally just than you uh, because they check off more boxes than you. Uh, it doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to be the proper way of doing business, but it is the reality that we live in. And we have to adjust our lives to the reality we live in, not the one we want. So to use that example, let's say I do get out, I'm going to charge in there, like, like John Wayne, and I'm going to solve that and dirty Harry away. The two, the two of the three robbers and the third one surrenders to me. I have to go to court eventually and address that. And, what a good defense attorney is going to say or, or a good prosecuting attorney is going to say is, why didn't you just drive away or call the police? Why did you have to get involved? Because you wanted to shoot people. Um, or they're going to say, well, they were just young disadvantaged men. Uh, it's exactly what happened in the in the carjacking situation that we all saw happen um, on the cell phone video from um, I guess it was Washington, D.C., where the where the two girls were carjacking the guy and he uh-huh. died yep yeah um, it was awful. They wound awful. up with ridiculously light sentences, and the media was immediately defending the girls because of their life situation made them do this. No, they were thugs, and that's what they do the 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 thing is you have to realize that self defense laws in America are completely irrelevant and have gone out the window. We see time after time people meeting up uh uh driving down the road running into an armed antifa roadblock. that's completely illegal, but when that person gets out. And a confrontation happens and that person draws their gun, even though the Antifa people already had guns out, that person is getting arrested. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, for law enforcement reasons, it's easier to arrest that one person than it is to try and arrest the others. But it it brings up the point that while you might want to get involved in some things in the current legal climate, it's probably better to leave it alone and drive away. Uh, I'm not trying to make it sound cold and harsh, but that's just reality. Right. And uh, you can't do bigger good down the road and in, in maybe preserving our Constitution or preserving our country if you let them jam you up on a charge for a self-defense case you shouldn't have even been involved with. I hope that makes sense. It's kind of a roundabout way, but no, no, it it
0: absolutely does. And and one of the reasons why
2: um,
0: I, I wanted to bring you on and you gave probably what I think is some of the best advice uh, that I've seen that really. Made me understand that you knew when you were writing your books uh, that you were going to be speaking to a primarily civilian audience, uh, but you were communicating to them for them as opposed to what I see a lot, which is uh, we run into this problem Uh, when you're a veteran, you talk, you know, you're talking shop, right. And you can lose your audience. The best advice I saw you ever give, where I said, this guy is, this is the guy I'm going to pick. If I'm going to pick somebody to talk to my audience, it's him. It was stop worrying about ammo and
2: start worrying about your first aid kit. Bingo. And I wanted
0: you to speak to that a little bit if you could.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So everyone, like you said, everyone starts in the middle with prepping, right? They decide, all right, I see the way society is heading. I see the way the supply chain, like you were just talking about, is headed. I got to get prepared. So I run out and buy an an AR platform rifle and 10,000 rounds. First of all, if you don't shoot at least 2,000 of that learning how it works, you you didn't do anybody any good. Um, Second of all, that's that's such an ancillary piece to preparedness that – It's scary that so many people think that's the first step, right? Um, You'll notice in my first two books, I barely even mention firearms at all, right? Most of it is hard skills that will either preclude you needing to use a firearm, protect you from others using a firearm against you, or things that will make you live longer. A firearm is not the ultimate end-all tool. The piece of preparedness kit that you will – Use the most and that you should You should be able to use first thing Today is a first aid kit um, I put it This way when I when I teach this, these classes uh, Live and in person is Raise your hand if you've ever been in a gunfight And then like you know nobody will raise their hand and then I'll say alright now raise your hand if you've ever Fallen down and everybody Has fallen down right So a first aid kit makes much more Sense to start there And um, I look at it from Two different standpoints first of all If we ever do get to a complete collapse of society, and we both know that's actually a win, not an if, but um, first aid is a misnomer. It's actually only aid, right? You're not going to be run into the emergency room because the emergency room will either be closed or completely overwhelmed with more serious injuries. So you have to be capable of treating just about anything that happens. Uh, Second of all is if I'm going to ever – Legally carry a firearm I need to also be able to treat The wounds that a firearm may cause Um, If I'm so worried About being robbed by an armed Individual that I want to start Carrying a gun I should probably Be carrying a first aid kit first Because that's more likely to happen So that's the biggest And and, and most important piece of first aid kit I mean uh, of survival gear you should get Is a first aid kit Um, The other thing that where I break with traditional Wisdom on this is Everyone talks about food storage, and I say, yeah, you should probably have some food storage, but it should be portable, not giant containers that you can't move, Um, because at some point you may need to move from your location, right? So if I've got all these five-gallon buckets full of food, that's not very portable. Uh, I recommend working on food production as opposed to food storage. So if I've got seeds and I know how to grow food, that's great. If I know how to hunt, trap, and fish – those are better than having a 10 year supply of food. Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. I, I do actually want to touch on, on that in a
0: second, but we have a question from the audience. So I want to get to that first, but well, then we'll get back to food because I have a sobering story where you ki- kind of put me in my place, but I'll get to that. So this, this comes from <laughs> Colleen. Uh, she says, there's a lot of talk about being a gray man, even in active shooter type scenarios. For example, open carry opens you up to being the first target being situationally aware and prepared sets you apart from the crowd by virtue of appearance just like any vet can recognize a vet from their build walk or expression what's the balance and is it better to look suspicious or uh, is it better to look suspicious hiding your awareness or to be obvious to anyone else who's aware of their surroundings
2: Um, Boy, that is a great question, and um, two things. Number one, we have to understand what gray man is and what gray man isn't. Mm -hmm. Gray man is not some lifestyle you can actually choose. Gray man is a set of tactics you use in a specific environment. So I can't just be gray man everywhere I go because everywhere I go is different. If I say I'm going to be gray man today and I'm going to a business meeting, I can't show up in blue jeans and a hoodie at a business meeting, right? Mm -hmm. I have to wear business clothes. So you have to understand that, that, that gray man is, is more of an attitude and specific preparations you take for specific locations you go. And it may change throughout the day. So that that's item one item two is I don't agree with this philosophy that if I'm open carrying, I'm going to be the first person shot. I would challenge that if I'm open carrying, I'm actually less likely to be shot because they're going to pick a different target. Um, The people who do active shooter events, um, they're not they don't think like you and me. So we can't apply our logic to them. When you go about your day, you probably encounter more open carry people than you might otherwise notice because you're not looking for it. Uh, Us veterans, we always see it. But the average civilian, I can walk by them open carrying and nine out of ten of them won't even notice because they're not attuned to that. Same thing with uh, an active shooter. His mind is so focused on his task, he doesn't even realize who's who, right? He's just there to accomplish a certain mission. Uh, you don't want to ask me how why, how I think active shooters happen, but we'll we'll, we'll move on from that topic. Um, <laughs> Maybe offline. <laughs> you're right. Right. So so being gray is a is a good idea, but again, it's not something you can do all of the time. Um. I spell it out in my second book, Fieldcraft. I have a chapter on gray men in there, but um, there's really two points to it. Number one is I can only be gray part of the day, right? Like like I said before, I might be going shopping, but – then I have to go to a meeting later. And those are two different environments. Therefore I would have to have two different modes of dress to, to truly be the gray man who is completely unnoticeable in any of them. And for guys who say, well, I live a whole gray man lifestyle. No, you don't because you work somewhere and you get a paycheck. So mm-hmm. you're not completely unnoticeable. Somebody pays you somebody, you know, somebody interacts with you at the bank. Somebody interacts with you here. Um, you can be more aware and less high key. Um, It's easy for me to say, hey, don't wear your 5'11 pants everywhere you go, and yet I do, Uh, (laughs) unless I'm going somewhere to do something specific. Um, So I guess my point is is that Gray Man is not something that you adopt every single day, all day. It is a specific option you choose when going to a specific location, if that makes any sense. So if I'm going to the grocery store, yeah, I might not wear my 5'11 pants. I might throw on jeans and a hoodie, which is the most common clothing in the Western world, right? Uh, I might do that. Um, but I'm still going to be aware it's, it's always a trade-off.
1: Right. I, I always think of it as, am I attracting undue attention to myself with whatever I'm doing? There you go. Uh, for example, like when I go, when I go out and go shooting, I drive off to the national forest, but I'll usually wear kind of my combat pants from Afghanistan with the integrated knee pads cause they can get dirty and torn apart and I don't really care. And the knee pads are cool. And it's a good exchange chance to wear them. But walking into a right. gas station with camo pants on and – like, I definitely kind of I, – I minimize the stops I have to make because I'm, A, not going to change out of those clothes. I'm going to wear them to get right. dirty off run around in the woods. But I also recognize how conspicuous that makes me. Same with uh, open carrying. I personally re- would rather concealed carry because it's less conspicuous not so much because, oh, an active shooter will target me or anything like that, but more I know that other people have a reaction to seeing firearms, and if they notice it, it could cause more attention to be drawn to me by them than I necessarily want to deal with. Like, I don't want the manager at the grocery store to come up to him and say, listen, the old lady in aisle five saw that you're carrying a gun, and I know you can, but, I mean, come on, can you please? And I think a lot of the gray man stuff gets overblown, the vast majority of people, if you're wearing the 511 tactical pants and, and, and you know, any of these other things, most people are going to look right past it. Only people that know what a gray man is might look, might notice in the first place. So I think the better uh, I often think of it as am I looking out of place or am I looking in place?
2: Right, right. And, you know, my last point on gray man is, is as I mentioned in Fieldcraft, my second book was once. Things collapse to that level. Uh, Once we get to a without rule of law society, gray man goes out the window. I would rather be the completely unseen man because I'm fully in camouflage or if I'm in an urban environment, I'm operating only at night um, than try to be a gray man Uh, in an urban environment, in a in a grid down society, as we hear from from uh, people who've lived through the Balkans conflict, people who lived through the conflict in Georgia and the Ukraine is there's no such thing as a gray man. Any human being moving during the day means a potential for food and right. a potential for supplies. So gray man is out the window at that point. It's far better to either be mistaken for a military member because you're in full gear and you're ready to fight. Right. Or not be seen at all because you're only operating at night or you're only operating in a covert method. Um, so exactly. that's a that's a big thing that people need to realize is people say, well, my whole plan is gray man. No,
1: uh, it's. It, being a gray man in the woods doesn't work, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like in a not without in a without rule of law scenario, either you're the unseen man or you're the man that's with a bunch of friends. Or yeah, so I guess guy, there's three. Like, you're you're the unseen it. man, you're the guy with, with a bunch of friends around him, or you're a target. So it's like it doesn't matter exactly. how you look if you've got 10 buddies that are rolling with you. And if you don't have those 10 buddies, either you should be unseen or you're going to be a target. Right on. Well, now, um, just just to kind
0: of uh, put put a nice bow on this. Um, So what what would be the balance? um, Not necessarily with the whole like looking and clothing wise, but what would be the balance between maintaining yourself as not being too conspicuous while still having a heightened amount of situational awareness? Like, do you have any tips on just how people kind of collect that around information without looking like the person who's walking in and checking all the exits and looking at everybody and and kind of how do you gather intelligence without looking like you're gathering intelligence? It's the, you know, if there's a guy reading a newspaper at a table, that's a spy because nobody reads newspapers anymore. So what would be kind of your recommendation for intelligence gathering
2: in public without giving yourself away? The same thing that I mentioned before is sticking to the perimeter of whatever event you go to. You go to any event, if you watch people, they're all gathered and they're all facing towards the center. Whether it's a stage, whether it's a a head table, whatever it is, everyone is always looking towards the center. If instead you stay to the outskirts and you kind of move along, you can be on a wall and you would naturally be looking inward, right? Then it doesn't look like you're looking at people. Um, this, this comes from a, a career of, of, of as a corporate security person for, for retailers. People on the wall looking inward is natural. People in the center looking outward is unnatural. right? So I'm going to stick to the outskirts of wherever I'm at, and that way looking inward towards everyone else is perfectly natural and normal and doesn't look out of place. Um, a couple of other things is learning what you can use in your environment. That enables you to look at things without looking at them. So if I'm at the grocery store, I can walk over to the meat counter, and there's usually glass there, and the meat's behind the glass, right? I can use that glass to look behind me or look around a corner before I walk, and it doesn't look unnatural as long as you're not doing the whole, you know, if you're not humming the eye spy theme and, and you know you're, you're dug, digging around. Um, <laughs> just walk naturally on the outskirts. Use reflective services uh, surfaces, not services. Um, and, and kind of stop trying, this is the biggest problem I see in gray, man. I I have a a photo on my Twitter page of a guy that I took a picture of. Uh, he was a militia guy trying to walk natural while going up to, to look at Antifa closely. Right. But first of all, he's wearing a level four vest underneath his t-shirt. And if you don't know what that looks like for the listeners out there who aren't necessarily military, uh, it looks like someone wearing an armored vest under a T-shirt. I mean it doesn't look like – it, it's very obvious that that's what's going on. But he was trying so hard to walk naturally that he was walking mechanically and it looked unnatural, right? So don't try to adopt something different than what you are. Just walk. It's, it's so hard when people try to blend in over the top while still trying to pay attention to their surroundings. How about if you just walk around? look at things, glance at things, but don't try so hard. Relax about it. Take in your surroundings and then just walk naturally sticking to the outside.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, since, um, we were, when we were talking about food, uh, you, you okay. mentioned, obviously, you know, there's a lot of companies out there and there's nothing necessarily wrong with them specifically that offer, you know, large amounts of food. You can buy them in bulk. They have a five-year shelf life. And in some, some ways. Uh, Those are okay. Like those are good things to have for, you know, kind of what I would call like your rainy day. Um, Or I personally, when I talk to people, tell them that that's really great for if you run across hard hard financial times. Uh, I myself gathered up food and I was very proud of myself because I have my, you know, the joke I make is that it's my basement bunker. And I had a good, I have a good amount of these nice big pails. Uh, That have food storage in them. And then I was reading your book and it never crossed my mind because apparently I'm an idiot um, (laughs) that I'm going to have to carry all of that. And then I'm going to have to walk with it because like people aren't going to close the streets down if there's a problem, because a lot of the issues that we've seen recently in the United States have taken place on streets in suburbs And so I've realized Mm -hmm. that my entire backstock of what was going to keep my family alive is completely worthless unless I plan on defending uh,
1: Fort Aaron uh, until the end of time. Yeah. I, I did a similar thing when COVID was kind of kicking up and I was had a moment where it's like, if I had to run to the Hills, what would I grab right away? And I looked around my Looked around where I live. So like, okay, I need to take that. I need to take that. And I definitely wouldn't want, want to leave that behind. And I certainly wouldn't want to leave all this behind. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's too much than can fit in my car right now. And that was the realization of, oh man, I, if you had to leave, the amount of stuff you'd have to be mentally capable of leaving behind and writing off is very high. It's like, I don't want to leave all of my nice things. I These are my things. I bought them. And I was like, Yeah, but that's going to be the barrier to when you need to get out or you need to leave or you need to leave a dangerous situation. You could be essentially emotionally tied to all those things. And if you're not prepared to let it go and just leave when you need to leave, that's going to make you hesitate. And that could be a very serious problem.
2: Yeah, you know, I I talk about that regularly in in the books. Um, Never be so tied to a location that you're willing to be burned in it, right? Um, Yeah. When I give this advice about, you know, you don't you don't need all that food storage. I always get pushback from people. Yeah, but I'm planning on bugging in. That's fantastic. And bugging in only works until you have to bug out. So Mm -hmm. let's say I do decide I've got that basement full of food storage, like 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 you mentioned, and I decide I'm going to bug in four or five weeks have gone by. There's no power. Nobody's gotten any food. Everybody else in my neighborhood is starting to look a little bit like a skeleton. But I'm not. I haven't lost a pound of weight. And we're happy. We're not out scavenging for food. Everybody else is going out and looking, you know, going through old grocery stores and all that looking for food. And you are not. They're going to come knock on your door and ask you why not. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you're going to have a decision to make. Um, The first time, they're probably going to ask you nicely for some food. And if you give them some, you're in trouble because they're going to be back for more the next day. And if you don't give them some, you're in trouble because they know. The point being, yeah. at that point, jig is up. So your decision is, am I going to fight and die here? Because let's be honest, no matter how many rounds of ammunition you have and how many guns you have, if 200 people want to take your house, they are taking your house. Um, it, it all depends on what their acceptable level of casualties is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and when people are hungry. So,
1: well, their acceptable level of casualties that day. <laughs> that day. Right. All right.
2: Uh, they'll they'll just set your house on fire and sort through it and take what's left. Um, So at that point you're going to have to leave. So you have to decide what you have that's portable and all of that. So a great exercise to do every now and then is to load up your car and see what it is you would actually be able to take. It's good practice. It's good training. And it gives you a baseline of what you need. Really, as far as food stores, you really shouldn't need more than six months And I say keep that in portable food because I might have to part with some of it, but I want to take whole meals with me. So a couple of cans, a couple of bags of backpacking food, whatever. Um, But after six months, you should be focusing on food production, right? Fishing, hunting, growing, doing various things that produce food for you so you don't have to worry about food. And, And here's why. For tens of thousands of years, man lived that way. We can do it. It's just so convenient now in our modern society not to. The reason why Western society progressed farther than all the others was simply because we learned how to store food. Um, but it's also become a catch-22. It's so convenient now that it's easier rather than building up my own pantry like like people did in the 1800s, building up a pantry full of food. It's easier now to keep three days' worth of food and just go buy more. Um we need to get back to building up of a pantry, but it needs to also be portable. I see a lot of people buying these, these giant five-pound cans of green beans. That's really neat. What are you going to do when you go to open that can of green beans? Are you going to eat five pounds of green beans at once?
1: No. And what are you going to do with the rest of them without refrigeration? So I actually thought of this when I last year put together kind of like a box full of canned food that I was like, "Okay, this is going to be the food I grab when I bug out cuz martial law were declared." And I actually got these silicone can covers that will stretch around the mouth of a, a regular size can and seal it because I had that same thought of I'm not going to I'm not going to want to eat the whole can of chili at once. I'm going to probably want to ration this a little bit while I'm on the road, you know, fighting off bandits. And But again, that's something that I consciously thought of as, ooh, I can't buy big cans. I need to be small cans, and I need to have a way to cover and seal them, because that's going to be really important. And and I I tell people, too, that when you're looking at getting canned foods for
2: survival purposes, get meals. Don't just get food. Right? Mm -hmm. So people so often just buy can this, can this, can that, can that, but they're not thinking of how any of it will go together. Like they get cans of chicken and all this other stuff. But if you get A can of chicken and a can of Spanish rice, that's a meal. Store those together, right? So you can grab a meal and take it with you. So It's just those small things that will make your planning a little bit better. So what I did when COVID hit, I had the same worries about you uh, as as you did, same worries about life then was, hey, what if they start throwing up roadblocks and I can't leave? Mm -hmm. So what I did is I started to spread my longer-term food supplies around. Right. So we have a cabin up north. Uh, You you know, you're from Michigan. You know, uh, everybody has a cabin up north. So let me take what I can up north now. uh, Since it's long term storage food and there's no restrictions, uh, although don't tell the governor that I did it because the governor said you couldn't go to your second house in Michigan. Uh, But so, yeah, right. Uh, Well, her husband did. So I guess it's cool. So um I took off and I I took a load of stuff up there. I also took up a bunch of other gear and put it there. Um, And I also contacted some friends along the way and said, hey, man, can I just put a couple boxes in your garage? Absolutely. Absolutely. So now it's spread out. The food is out there and around. Um, And ironically, this ties to a big a big principle of my books. My books um, are preparedness advice with a biblical standpoint. Right. It's not in your face, but there are some mentions of it. But there's a biblical verse, uh, Ecclesiastes uh, 11.2, that says, give portions to seven, yes to eight, because you don't know what disaster may come upon the land. That means don't have all your eggs in one basket. It means take your things and spread them around, because if one location is unavailable to you, like your home and your big pile of food, you'll have six or seven more locations where you have other food that you can get to. Um, It's the same with investing, right? Diversification. Get your get get stores set up in other places. If you don't have friends, we'll let you store stuff there. Go to um, you mentioned a national park. Hey, go to a national park, bury some stuff and mark it. Know where it is, and mm-hmm. um, you've got it. So that, let's just say things went bad tonight, and you had to leave with what you could carry on your back. You wouldn't be completely out of it because you'd have a cache that you could get to. Mm-hmm. Think about those kind of things.
0: Now. From from that standpoint, um, you know, obviously, like you know, you carry your food, you you have your stores set up, and then the idea, obviously, is food production, which is you know, obviously, it's it's a great idea, and these are these are skills that you know people can build up and become enjoyable hobbies as well. Uh, but from that standpoint, um, you know, looking at uh, people who go out and they do wilderness survival there's a lot of discussion when it comes to like storage. For example, obviously you take down large game, you take a deer down. Um, you're now in a situation where you're basically going to have to smoke the meat unless there's other ways to do it that I'm like not fully aware of. And I'm not by any, any means not a how much,
1: how much salt do you have? <laughs> and, and what,
0: what is your solution for food storage without refrigeration? in the food production standpoint
2: well there are a lot of things that you can do um the problem with 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 meat going bad is exposure to air right so i could certainly encase it in plastic and bury it and it's going to keep for a little while it's going to be a little bit cooler and it's going to keep for a little bit longer um salt is a great way um For most of human history, salt beef and salt pork were the the main ways in which people ate. And essentially, they just took the meat off the bone, threw it in a barrel, filled the barrel with salt, and that was it. Um, The Norwegians and and, and Danish people did the same thing with fish. Just storing it in salt preserves it. Um, You have to go – we are such a high-tech society that we've forgotten – that we can do things low-tech if we want to. We've just gotten away from it. Most of the, the problems we have with, with with food dates and food expiration here in modern society are self-imposed. right? Even the date on a can of food you've gotten is probably five to ten years earlier than it really will spoil. Um, we do that because we're afraid of litigation. We do that because it's just more convenient to get more. We have to realize that humans live for a long time before this brief moment in time we're in. Um, Your solutions have to be low-tech or no-tech. So if you do take a deer, you're going to want to eat what you can right away, Um, store some in salt. You can make jerky, which is essentially nothing but slow smoking, I guess, and dehydration. There are a lot of different ways you can do it, and there's a lot of resources out there. Um, It's not really my specialty area because I'm more into – taking the game that you're going to use right away, like fish and small game and things like that. Mm-hmm. A deer, um, uh, the, the, the places where I would go, there are enough people that we would probably eat an entire deer in relatively short order, and we wouldn't have to worry about that. Um, cold storage is your way to go, though, like I mentioned, getting it below ground, getting it somewhere cooler, and it will last much longer um, fresh uh, than what you might actually think. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And that's like because my go to because I I'm very ignorant on uh, large game storage was, well, I'm going to fish, you know, I'm going to I'm going to create a gill net and I'm going to have a pole uh, because that's way more convenient than trying to do the uh, the primitive (laughs) pole. If I can get away Mm -hmm. with it, those those would be like kind of my go tos as well and it is because the sake of ease um and and the idea that it's it's something very nomadic your no your nomads were more more commonly fishermen um than much of anything else uh, unless you get into some of the some of the weirder stuff unless you're really comfy eating bugs which you may have mm-hmm. to and there are bugs you can eat um they're going to do it but uh so From, from all of that, I I think the bigger, uh, a big concern, because all of this is great and it's all very immediate things and it's, it's good stuff that people can kind of grab onto what are recommendations? Because I think the actual scary scenario, like people can, people can look at a societal collapse and people can look at, um, you know, things going haywire and it's very easy for me to daydream about me having a ruck on my back and going out into the woods that daydream becomes a nightmare when I add my two children to the equation, and so oh, absolutely.
2: And um, if you take a look at the baseline training manual, book one of the tactical wisdom series, um, I give some good training exercises where um, you can do it with the family, you can do it with the group, you can do it with whatever. Where the first time you just get everyone together, everyone throws on the ruck and they walk for one hour out into the woods. We sit down, we have a a woods lunch, right? You you build a fire or you use your stove, whatever, and then you come back that one hour. So you're talking maybe a three-hour trip, right? One hour out, an hour to eat, clean up, hour to come back. After that, you then do it for an overnight. So we're going to go out, we're going to move out there quietly and carefully, we're going to select a site, we're going to stay the night, and then we're going to come back. And you got to do all your cooking, all your food prep, and you got to do all that out there, but... I add the element of doing it securely. We're not just out for a hike, we're not out camping, we're not going to have a big roaring campfire. We're going to pick a secure site, we're going to make sure that we're off the beaten path. We're going to make sure that we've got a security plan. Someone's going to be on watch, or, mm-hmm. if not on watch, that you, uh, we're so remote that no one else can find us. Things like that, right? So then you do it in overnight. Then the next time you do it for a whole weekend, and you're gradually building into the ability to do it for a week at a time, take a vacation. We go on a nice uh, backpacking trip. Mm-hmm. People have to acclimate themselves to the outdoors. And and you're right. It's hard to do it with kids. But the only way that you're going to do it is to get out and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I point out regularly that as recently as the 1950s, every man in America could hunt, fish, camp out, whether he had a tent or not, uh, and do all these different outdoors things. Every man in America could do it. Do you think that's the case today? No. I do not. Right. Simply because we've gotten away from doing it. We don't do it anymore. And the only way to do it is start with those small steps, taking them out there, getting them out there and explaining to the kids that there's that that there's a reason why we're being quiet. There's a reason why we're not taking the big path that everybody else is taking. Uh, And kids actually like it because it becomes fun for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, When my son was younger, he was in the Boy Scouts. And I'm sure you all know what the Boy Scouts have become. Yeah. Uh, it's not what it was, uh, all those years ago. So myself and his scoutmaster were so disgusted after one, uh, one camping trip. We held a, when Mr. Dolio and Mr. Coleman were, were boy scouts camp. We told the boys they couldn't bring any electronics. We were not bringing any grills. We weren't bringing any portable sinks or dining flies or anything like that. They could bring a backpacking tent and they literally had to do it all on their own and live in the woods for a weekend. And them being teenagers of the of the of the early 2000s, uh, they were not happy about it. Right. And um, on Friday, but by Sunday, it was the best time they had ever had because they learned real skills. Uh, They built uh, built a fire and cooked their own food over it with nothing. Right. Uh, No gas grills, no nothing. Uh, and they were able to do it, and they really enjoyed it. And we taught them a little bit about tracking, a little bit about navigation, and they had a blast. And our problem is we've made life so convenient for everyone that people don't do these skills. And quite frankly, they're fun.
1: Mm-hmm. This was. So um... I've got a question. Mm-hmm. I got a question for you. Yeah. So let's say we're, we're we've had all this to kind of stuff looming for a while we're looking at there's could, could be supply chain issues who knows what's going to happen in the next say year so if you gave people let's say w- in one year you're and let's take Aaron's case he's not going to just move out of the suburbs to the middle of nowhere he's not going to quit his job and become a mountain hermit like he's going to stay probably living in the suburbs i you know a lot of people are going to stay where they are cuz they have a whole life and job built up in places that you can't just run off to the woods at a moment's notice But let's just say you take the average person in one year. What do you think from now to that one-year mark they should either kind of prepare for, skills they should kind of build up? Like what do you think if you go from now to one year, what would be the goal to have in your life a year from now to deal with the challenges that we see kind of now and coming in the future?
2: Man, you teed this up so beautifully. I couldn't have wrote a better ad for my books than what you just did. (laughs) So, um, when you take a look at my first two books at the end of each chapter, there's what's called the baseline training standard or a training standard in the second one. So for example, um, let's just take my chapter on which chapter is this, um, building your, your own full size ruck pack, right? At the end of the chapter, it says baseline standard, get a 50 to 70 liter size ruck with an internal or external frame. Get a backpacking stove and fuel, sleep system of some type, shelter system and survival kit, extra clothing and wet weather gear, and put that all in the same backpack. So basically, I would recommend you buy my first two books and uh, do the do the standards at the end of the chapters. But um, <laughs> what it is basically is <laughs> learn how to survive outdoors in all environments. Um, and I don't mean, you know, you don't have to be. Mr. Uh, woods Craftman who can go out there with nothing on your back and, and build yourself a, a woods fort out of nothing but logs. But I mean backpacking tent, backpacking stove, the ability to move long distances over ground carrying a backpack. So, so I guess that's the first thing, rucking, the ability to put on a pack and cross distances. It's one thing to say I'll, I walk at work all day. It's another thing to throw on a backpack and walk in a straight line for five miles. We all know this, but – the average civilian doesn't. They think it's, oh, I, work, I walk at the office all day. I'll be fine. Now, throw on 25 pounds on your back and walk and then tell me that you're going to be fine. So get the ability to walk because that will be one of the first things that goes. Um, to get the ability to expose your body to the elements and not freak out. I, I, that seems really weird and it seems like I'm making fun of people. But we've become so climate controlled that we leave our air-conditioned houses. We walk to our air-conditioned cars drive to our offices and park inside the the, the parking ramp and walk to our air conditioned office. If the temperature varies as much as five degrees one way or another, we're either hot or we're cold. And Lord don't let it rain. So
1: <laughs> learn well, to and that's expose a, yourself elements. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say that that's actually a really interesting point because I could see a lot of people, myself included, thinking, especially looking back, it's like, oh I went to Afghanistan. I'm awesome and tough. But without me realizing it, I easily could get a job in an office, go there every day, do the air conditioned house, the air conditioned, and essentially lose that without myself even knowing it, or essentially become less acclimated to any kind of suffering or hardship just because my life got easy, and then not realize that I've become as soft as I actually have because I'm never being tested.
2: Well, I'll tell you, a lot of people, um everyone who knows me thinks it's weird that in Michigan in the wintertime I rarely wear a coat until like February when it gets to be, you know, below twenty degrees. So basically I refuse to to put on a light jacket until it gets below forty. And I won't put on a heavy winter coat until it gets below twenty. Because if I do, I start to lose cold tolerance. And I don't want to do that. Um, I live in a cold area. So Huh. The more we make ourselves stay one constant temperature, the less tolerance we have. So another way to, to combat this is as you're preparing to do your training and you're like, OK, we're me and my family are going to start rucking and we're going to do it every, every uh, three days, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, right? We're going to do that every week. But Wednesday rolls around and it's raining. Don't not train. Get out and do it in the rain because when that day comes, you don't get to say, oh, but hold up, time out. It's raining today. Right. Same thing with snow and cold and heat. And another area where where I guess if anyone has followed me on Twitter for more than five minutes, you know, I talk a lot about these people who train while wearing shorts. In a real environment, if in a real grid down environment, if you're wearing shorts, you're probably going to die because you're going to get some infection from some cut. So when training, you should also train in the clothing you're going to wear. Uh, you've been to Afghanistan, you know, doesn't matter how hot it gets, l- sleeves are rolled down, you're wearing pants, you're not no. wearing shorts, you're not wearing short sleeves. So you have to train that way and be comfortable that way, even in the summer. Um, hmm. A lot of people show the photos of the Rhodesians walking through the jungle in their shorts, and their short shir- short sleeve shirts. But the truth of the matter, and, and one of the guys who follows me is from South Africa, he goes, the honest thing is a lot of those guys died from dengue fever because they walked around in shorts <laughs> – and, and tank tops all the time. Um, in know, without just, rule
1: of law environment, you're not going to be able to do that. So, Just the so fact to... of, like, I don't know if anyone's ever kneeled on gravel, but it yeah, sucks. <laughs> and it's, it sucks wearing jeans. But imagine if you're in any kind of scenario where, like the Rhodesians, for example, uh, you kneel in combat an awful lot. You get down, you get up, and you're going to use your knees into the dirt. And that would suck in shorts it would suck in jeans it suck kind of sucks even if you're wearing knee pads
2: but it's got to be done and you know what i I mentioned that in the second book that get comfortable getting down on the ground and laying in the dirt for hours um because people don't think about that but that's going to be the majority of your life you have to observe things to make sure that they're safe before you can proceed um you're going to be watching your perimeter to make sure nobody's coming up there. So, so there it is. So I guess um, back to the, to the question though is one, learn to get outside and expose yourself to the elements while walking long distances. Um, I always say we have to prepare not for the event but for the second and third order effects, right? It doesn't matter why the power is out. It doesn't matter why the grocery stores are empty. I have to train for the fact that there is no food to be had and I can't get gasoline out of the ground to put in my car. The second and third order effects are I'm going to have to walk and I'm going to be hungry. So train yourself in, in that area. Develop the food stores so that you have portable food to last you long enough until you can produce food. Develop the ability to walk uh, in any environment, whether it's rain, snow, wind, whatever, uh, over long distances while carrying something on your back. Um, and the other thing is what, what I refer to as functional fitness. And it's the things like, like it, was, it was just mentioned, kneeling if you do lunges, you're practicing an actual practical skill of kneeling down that you're going to need. You kneel way more than you might think when you start hiking and rucking and moving around, um, patrolling, really. Um, Things like doing, I I don't know, in the Marines, we call it a bend and thrust. I guess they call it a burpee now where you drop Mm -hmm. down, kick your feet out. That's practicing getting on the ground so that you can't be seen or shot, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's, Learn to get your body moving in ways in which it's not used to just the the basic existence we have now is so sedentary that it's problematic for a lot of people, myself included. Uh, I had an office job for years and, and my body suffered for it. You have to actually get out and move your body and expose it to the elements. Those are the biggest things you can do. And if you're going to buy something, the first thing you should buy is a big first aid kit.
0: Well, and since we are uh kind of running into the end of the program, I do have a question because th- this is this is the fun part of it. Uh morale is something that you can't really talk about when you're trying to prepare people, right? Because uh, there's so many fundamentals that they need to get. Um but morale is always sort of that thing that you keep an eye on once you are well trained. And when it comes to that, one of my favorite things to just ask anybody is everything's collapsed. You're out in the woods. You're, you're doing, you're doing your thing. Life sucks and it's going to continue to suck. And you've embraced it, but what's the thing that goes in your bag that's going to make you happy. And I'm bringing this up because I like the idea of, of telling people uh, how there's these really simple things that they can take, uh, in these scenarios and like realize true happiness. And I think that you probably know what I'm, what I'm getting at, but what is the thing that goes in your ruck? That's your like true happiness that you're going to carry with you. That's going to be that morale piece.
2: Well, I don't know specifically where you're going with it, but there's a few ideas. Um, One is if you're with a group is a deck of cards, right? Um, There are so many different things that you can do with that games that could be made up, played, you can do things like that. Um, you could take a reason why with you, photos, things like that. I don't know what what are what are you getting at? For me, it's a deck of oh. cards. I actually full of a of a deck of cards that I actually helped design um, that are coming out very soon. It's a survival deck of cards, and on each card there's going to be a survival tip. But it's also just a deck of playing cards. Great thing to have for morale.
0: I was, I was uh, sorry. I, I meant it more personally. What's what is Joe Dolio's morale item that goes in his rucksack?
2: Oh. Well, that's very simple. Um, The book titles are called Tactical Wisdom for a reason. Um, For me, it's going to be a Bible because there's a reason for that. All of human history uh, has brought us to this point, and most of it's recorded in there. So for everyone, it's their own spiritual touch base, right? Um, It doesn't have to be the Bible for you. It could be whatever it is that gets you up and going and gets you moving. Um, But I've got my very cool camouflage Bible tucked in the front pocket of my rucksack because it's got a great reference there for me awesome
0: i just it's it's my favorite question to ask anybody is what what's the thing that goes in your bag that that you know because for me it, as silly as it is i carry a stuffed whale and it's because Dude, my daughter awesome. gave it to me my My daughter gave it to me and no matter where i'm at no matter where i go if i'm traveling uh i have whalium
2: and you so... know we used to have a uh, perry the platypus from uh some stupid Nickelodeon show. I don't remember, but the joke was always where's Perry. And I would take a picture of Perry everywhere. I went same kind of deal. Yeah. You got to have some personal touch base that brings your family uh, or your reason for being there. Something to remind you. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Well, that's awesome. That's going to have to kind
0: of conclude. It looks like uh, we've already got some people that have picked up books from you. So hopefully we've done, we've done some good for the good that you've done us today. Um, any any parting words of tactical wisdom that you'd like to give the audience? Please, please let everyone know your books uh, and your website,
2: though, before we do uh, hit the sure. road on this. Sure. All right. First of all, you can find me uh, on Twitter. It's Dolio J. Um, my website is tactical-wisdom.com. Uh, my books are available there. They're also available at Amazon. Um, so my parting tactical wisdom is lose false hope. Um, The biggest problem that we run into right now is all the people who say, listen, just just don't rock the boat. It's all going to blow over. Um, You have to get beyond that. You have to realize, be a realist. Things are are going downhill quickly. America is in a decline and you need to be prepared to survive with your tribe, whatever that is, Um, and understand that there are no. Max Rakatansky's or Eli from the Book of Eli uh, out there. You have to have a tribe of people. They're going to help you get through Um, and find them now and start preparing today because things are just going to get bad.
0: Right on. All right. Well, that's going to be it for today. So thank you so much, Joe, for coming on and and letting everybody hear from it. And, uh, you know, if we if we get any more questions, I'll be sure to send them your way and maybe we'll have you on again, uh, depending on what kind of crazy stuff happens in the future. So uh, we'll see if this accelerates. But uh, thank you so much for coming on to the program and, and talking with the audience. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, everybody, that's going to be it for our program. Uh, obviously, we will be back next week on Sunday, uh, back to our normal time from noon until 2 Eastern Time. Uh, hopefully, everybody checks out. Let us know if you guys have any questions. As always, go to subscribestar.com forward slash wrongthinkradio to help support the program. Otherwise, Check us out on any of your podcatching devices. I know a lot of you guys are going to hear about this on Monday, or hear this on Monday. So be sure to just uh, let us know if you have any questions. We'll push them along over to Joe. Otherwise, I'm Aaron from the East Coast. I'm Alan from the West Coast. And this is Wrong Think Radio. Have a great week, everybody.